Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from sorry, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God had said, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Romans chapter 7, 7 to the end of the chapter. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, Apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. 
for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like I did when I was at uni in the first year of my psych degree. Uh, you're reading about all of these archaic uh, things, of the history of the discipline that you're working within. Um, when I was doing engineering, you know, be reading about all of these engineering discoveries and stuff like that. And when I was doing psychology, I was relatively bored a lot of the time reading about these psychological discoveries, these psychological um, experiments, until I got to ones that involved children for some reason. There's this whole batch of uh, experiments uh, which were done throughout the 60s and 70s, which we probably can't ever replicate ever again because they're completely unethical, um, which involved trying to figure out at the base level why people act the way that they do. And so a lot of the time they were um, looking at children and, and how children act and behave. One of them that caught my eye uh, when I was studying for an exam was what's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Uh, Stanford and Marshmallow in the same sentence is just amazing in, in, to start with, let alone the experiment itself. The experiment essentially had a whole bunch of uh, children of varying ages and he sat them down in a room like this and they gave them a marshmallow, put it on the middle of the table and said, all right, I'm going to leave the room for a while, and if, when I come back, that marshmallow is still there, I'll give you two marshmallows. You can eat it if you want, but if, you, if it's still there when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows, or three, or four, or five, in varying, um, varying degrees, varying quantities. Do you want to have a guess as to what the outcome of this experiment was? No one, no one wants the marshmallow? I should have brought marshmallows and I can, I can give you the marshmallow if you get it. No. Uh, an incredibly large number of kids actually reached out and grabbed that marshmallow and ate it. They struggled with delaying their desire for the marshmallow uh, in order to get more marshmallows. And I think that that pattern of delayed desire, the way that, our, that we um, deal with our desires and, and our, our wants, uh, is really reflected in this passage. Um, one of the other aspects I often find fascinating is when, when I'm at Oxford, there's these little signs everywhere. Please keep off the grass. Um, or none of the undergrads, none of the, the grad students, no, if you're a student, you cannot walk on the grass at many of the colleges in Oxford. When, when can you walk on the grass? Well, you can if you're faculty. If you're faculty or you're with a faculty person, you can walk on the grass. 
This is controlled desire. All of the students want to become faculty because they can walk on the grass. And I'll tell you what, I had the privilege of walking on the grass uh, with a friend of mine who's faculty at Oxford. It is a really weird feeling. You've been told all the time, don't do this, don't do it, and then you get to do it. And it's remarkably, for, for an act as simple as walking on the grass, it's a remarkably cathartic thing. I'm walking on grass. I can walk on any grass anywhere in the world, but I can't. No one else can walk on this grass at this time, except for me. We struggle with these desires, don't we? Like, we, we get told not to do things. We, we really want them. We, we have these struggles with desire. And so at the heart of this passage here, at the heart of Romans 7, is Paul's intense struggle with desire. He writes uh, in Romans 7, 7 to 9, I would not have known uh, what sin was if it had not been for the law. If, if there's no law telling you not to desire something, not to want something, you, don't, you, you don't tend not to want it. I would not have known what coveting was if the Lord had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. It's a crazy thing, isn't it? You, you never know that you want a 50-inch TV until your neighbours come home and pop that little TV box outside on the footpath. You never really know that you want a new car until you're watching the footy and there's the ads on the big screen at half-time. We want things because we're shown them, we're shown what, what coveting is. And even more than that, as we saw uh, with the marshmallow experiment, an even bigger part of that is being told not to want something. By giving sin an opportunity to, um, to work on us, by, by telling us, no, do not eat of, of that tree or do not um, do this sin, it actually turns it on ourselves rather than focusing the rules on God. These commandments, these um, laws work on our desires and become the means of corrupting what is actually really good. And Paul here picks up on that theme from Genesis that uh, the good command to Eve was given, do not eat of the tree, because on that day you will certainly die. And the serpent twists it and changes it and says, actually, this is a place of desire. It's not, it's not that you'll certainly die. You'll become like God. It's twisted by the, by the serpent to turn it in on Eve and on Adam and produce disobedience. We are all like the, those children, aren't we? Sitting there with a marshmallow in front of us being told, ooh, don't eat of that marshmallow. Desire is what's at the heart of sin for Paul. So what's the solution here then? Well, I'll tell you what I think often when we read these words, we think the solution is. Often when we read these words, we go, well, it's just time to suppress our desires better. That little Nike logo, which, uh, the, what, what's the words under the Nike logo say? Just do it. Or, or like um, Shia LaBeouf, the, our, our, our friend who has, whose parents have wonderful faith in beef. Just do it. Suppress your desires better. Exercise that willpower. Don't sin. And actually, many of the experiments that we that we as psychologists, I'm saying we because I come from a psych background, do say that actually this gives better outcomes. 
The kids who suppress their desire in the marshmallow test, they followed them up 10 years later, they had better SAT scores, better exit scores um, from, from college. Suppressing your desire, delaying gratification for desire, actually has positive outcomes. When I was uh, at the start of the year, I was, you know, you, everyone does their New Year's resolution sort of things. Um, Strava starts, which is that exercise app, starts popping up all these little things about how you can uh, make, uh, make 2019 a better you. Uh, one of them was suggesting actually going to finding some glossy magazine, uh, finding a body shape that you like, cutting out the body, getting, a, getting one of your um, portrait photos from, from a passport, and sticking that on top of the body that you want, and then sticking that on your mirror. Putting a, better pic a picture of our better selves on the mirror. So every morning, you're going to be reminded, I want to be like that. If I work hard enough, if I suppress my desires for chocolate, if I don't eat as much at the all-you-can-eat buffet, I can be like this picture on the mirror. And I think at a broader level, that's actually what our culture does as a whole. If we can just do X, Y, and Z, if we can recycle more, if we can take keep cups to work more, if we can use less waste, if we can use less plastic, we will achieve utopia. It will be a better world for everyone. And it's not to say that it won't be a better world for everyone, but I think at our heart we know that there's something niggling there. Because I think we know, actually, in our deepest level, when we see those examples of just cut out the body you want and put it on your mirror, we know how that, the pattern ends. All, all diets end with cravings for the things that you're not supposed to be having. That's why you have things like keto diets, which are eat everything you, you want in this category, but nothing you want in, this nothing you, you, you want in that category. So a friend of mine uh, is a great evangelist for the keto diet, um, which is essentially eat as much protein as you can, but no carbs. Um, eat as much fat as you want, but no carbs. Um, and when we were having dinner earlier in the year, the one thing he was eyeing off on the table all the time was the carbs. And so when we have these diets, what do we build into them? We build in cheat days. Okay, so six days of the week, you're allowed to... You, you, so six days of the week, you have to just cut out all carbs. On that seventh day, you can have carbs. You have to delay your desire for six days, which just creates more desire for the next six days afterwards, doesn't it? It doesn't actually cut out the desire for anything. And I think if we, if we retroject that back into this passage... Can we imagine Paul saying, just, just sin once a week, it's okay. Don't, don't sin, just sin once a week. No. But I think at a deeper level, we know that that's just a sign that this is absolutely flawed. I was, I've been having to do a lot of driving around, um, picking up bits and pieces and running errands this week. And I noticed that you know, all of these drivers on the road really suck. They are terrible drivers on the road. People cut corners, they don't indicate, they speed everywhere, 
And, and as, as I was driving down the Eastern Freeway, undertaking a car, uh, doing just over the speed limit, pulling back into their lane without indicating to point out the fact that they shouldn't be in the right-hand lane doing 10K under the limit, I realised, actually, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm being a really sucky driver right now while I'm judging everyone else for being really sucky drivers. I couldn't live up to my own standards. I think we all realise that in different points in our life. We realise that when we go to bed exhausted, at trying to strive and work so hard, and yet saying we need to rest more. Personally, actually, I, I noticed earlier in the week, uh, I, I, noticed, I felt anger bubbling up at me, inside of me at my kids. Not because of anything dramatic that they'd done, they had been kids. They were just doing the things that a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old do. But it was because of my own standards, of how I wanted them to act, that I was getting angry at them because I couldn't live up to my own standards. And this isn't just a Christian thing. Sure, the dissonance might, the distance between our ideals and the reality might be greater, but I think this is a deep-seated distress that everyone feels. This isn't just something that I feel, but it's all of our society feels it. It's just that we've got really good at hiding it. We hide it under the veneer of diets to get, to get better. We hide it under the veneer of achieving utopia. We're actually just ruled by our desires. Jeremiah uh, 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It chases after all of these things. Who can understand it? And in fact, actually, as Paul points out here, if we're actually freed from slavery to something, well, we'll just go right back out and enslave ourselves to something else. And I think this is why the, the description in this next part of the passage feels so familiar to all of us. And it's actually what they realized with the marshmallow experiment. The marshmallow experiment, while it correlated brilliantly with SAT scores, one of those things you do as psychologists is you repeat things over and over again just to make sure that you're actually getting things correct. Um, and they realized, actually, there were several other confounding factors. And one of them seemed to be a correlation with upbringing. It wasn't just about how much those children could marshal their willpower at that point uh, to defeat their desire, but it was about, also about whether or not the kids had experiences in their past of parents, adults, keeping their promises. Could they trust an adult to actually come back into the room 15 minutes later and give them two, three, four or five marshmallows? And I think that's the same for us. We've been in this state of, of sin, of, of disordered desire, for a long time. And it leaves its scars on us. We've been horrified by the things that we've done, horrified by the things that our world does. And so, as Paul continues on, he writes about the flesh. He writes that we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He returns back to the slave analogy that he's, he's used earlier in, in the chapter and in the, in the book. 
I do, not, I, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but sin living in me. We can do all that we want to do, but ultimately we're still slaves. We're still inexorably changed by the, the horrors that have been wrought upon us by sin. And I think horror here is a good category for this. Horror is a thing that is uh, visited upon us that we have no control over. As much as we might try to think we have control over it by watching movies or playing horror, like Resident Evil or various video games. We have no control over the horrors of our world. And it changes us. It scars people. And this isn't just a Christian thing either. Ovid uh, recognised this in, uh, when he's writing in the Metamorphoses. Uh, Ovid, the 5th century poet, BC, before Paul, uh, it writes, I see the better and I approve it. I, I desire it. But I, have, I follow the worst. I follow the things that I do not want to do because I'm, and this is in part of this long excursus about love and desire, uh, that Ovid is, be, is reflecting on the fact that he's been changed or the, the characters in his story have been changed by uh, their desires, their loves, and they've been scarred by them. We know, as, as um, Campbell pointed out earlier and, and, Paul, and Pete preached on last week, Paul writes that we're freed from slavery. We're utterly free. But we're changed by that experience. It's a bit like Frodo looking back on, on his journey at the end of Lord of the Rings, end of Return of the King, he um, returns to the Shire, but he's a hollow shell of a man that, that was there, or a hobbit, really, a um, hollow shell, shell of a hobbit than when he left. The, sh the Shire is burning, the trees have been cut down, but all he can think of is being stabbed, being bitten, having his finger bitten off. He's changed inexorably by what he's experienced, the journey he's been on, the horrors he has seen. And instead, at the end of Lord of the Rings, he, he leaves the Shire to, to, um, to Pippin and Merry and instead goes off to Valinor, the, the, um, the land of the undying. As Campbell um, used a brilliant analogy a few weeks ago, it's like Cinderella. Uh, Cinderella at the ball has, has been changed uh, she's dancing in new shoes, got a new gown. But I think for us, we're like Cinderella, but we feel that there's part of us that wants to be back at home in our rags. Why is that? Why do we feel this tension pulling us away from the desire to return to, to sin, even though we've been freed from it? Well, I think part of it comes from one of one of the other great psychological um, conundrums, one that actually didn't come from uh, experiments wrought upon small children, but it came from a less formal experiment, let's say. Uh, in 1973, uh, at the, in the Credit Bunken in Stockholm, um, Two men, or one man originally, and then he recruited another, uh, Jan Erik Olofsson and Clark Olofsson, uh, tried robbing the bank. Uh, they took four hostages, 
shot a policeman in the hand and entered into a hostage standoff uh, with police for two days. What is bizarre about this situation is actually over those two days, the hostages developed a bond with their captors. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the captors, uh, Sven Safstrom, um, after in, in being interviewed by the, um, by the, the uh, media afterwards, one of the hostages said, when he, uh, Jan-Erik Olsson, the captor, the, the hostage taker, he, when he treated us well, we could actually think of him as a kind of emergency god. They form this bizarre bond with the people who are actually holding them hostage. Um, late, later on, several of, the, uh, of the, the hostages would go and visit their captors in prison, writing them love letters. And we, we actually uh, named this, this conundrum, why would hostages want to return back to a life uh, with, their, with their captors? We named it Stockholm Syndrome. That in some bizarre way, being captive, being enslaved by a captor, and then being released later on, sometimes actually makes you want to go back and be enslaved yet again. And I think, to some degree, the Stockholm Syndrome exemplifies the, the tension that we have in our hearts. It shows us that sharpness and frustration that we have between the good that we've been released, that we've been freed from our slavery to do, and yet the sin, the... the um, the darkness that we continually want to desire to return to. It's this constant pull in our hearts. We desperately want the good life, but we're thwarted by our own disordered desires. It's actually probably the original Groundhog Day writ large. Over and over again, day after day, we, we wake up and we do the bad, the, what we do not want to do, despite wanting to do the good. And so what does it actually look like when we, when we live in this reality? Well, I think this constant pattern of returning to try and suppress our desires over and over again, to claim that we are free and yet live in the reality that we are enslaved to our new desire, leads to exhaustion. It's really tiring trying to, to be... Um, a good person all the time on your own. It leads to burnout. That di disconnect between the reality that we're in and, the, and where we desire to be is massive. It leads to moralism. I can be a better desire suppressor than you, than you can. Why? I think it, because like Stockholm Syndrome, it ends with us falling back into the rut that has been worn into us, those scars that have been coursed into our hearts by sin. Those utopias that we desire to build by taking more keep cups and having more beeswax wraps, good as they are, actually just end up looking like, looking like another dystopia. And part of that is probably why our culture revels in horror. Why we keep producing more and more TV shows like Black Mirror and Hand Handmaid's Tale and movies like 28 Days Later 
the dystopias of our hearts need to be expressed somehow. And so we put them onto the silver screen so they can be held at an arm's length. It's like we just want to go back and live as a slave again. It's a bit like uh, the disciples sitting in the boat with Jesus in Mark 4. They've met the one who has done all of these miraculous things. And yet when a storm comes up, what happens? They're fishermen. They just go back to rowing like hell. I've just got to get out of here. We go back to what we know. We, cut, we keep rowing. Instead of calling out to the one that they know can resolve the situation that they're in. So where do we go? If constantly we want to be back in our rags, if like the captives in Stockholm, we want to um, be back in the vault with our captors. How do we resolve this tension between what Paul has already said in Romans 7, 6, that we have been released from slavery to the law and yet our heart feels like we're back in the rut. Paul gives this in just a short, single sentence. It's this short sentence which, which sums up what he's been presenting as the gospel throughout the entirety of Romans already. He says in Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. One short sentence to sum up what he's been saying for seven chapters. That actually what we need is not just to suppress our desires, because we can't do that. We need someone else to step into our disorder, step into our horrors, and to, to change what is there. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he gives us here is a summary, a gospel summary of Jesus' deliverance for us. That Jesus, in taking on human form, in taking, becoming a person, becoming a man, gave up his freedom as the Son of God to be shackled to a human body, to experience the horrors of our world, to have them wear on him. Eventually, he would give himself up to literal shackles as he is bound, beaten, taken before um, the ruling authorities and nailed to a cross. He is put into slavery so that he may break the bonds of our slavery and bring us freedom. The horror that is wrought upon him, not just in uh, the horrors of this world, but the horror of the cross, he endures to release us from the pattern of our horror, to release us from slavery. In that way, we are, as uh, the, um, the, the ending scene of Gladiator puts it, now we are free. But what are we free to? This isn't just a vision of the cross that Paul is giving us that releases us from our chains and frees us from ca captivity. 
because he'll continue on in the, in the next section, uh, in, ch- in chapter 8, which, Paul, uh, which Pete is going to preach on, as Paul says, that we aren't just released from slavery to sin, but we are actually bound to Christ. One of the, the strange things that, um, that Stock- both Stockholm Syndrome and other forms of uh, um, psychology of, of dealing with people's horror, dealing with people's scars from trauma, has taught us is that we don't just need to be um, released from captivity. Those hostages do not, didn't just need to be released from that vault. But actually the scars that were wrought in their hearts needed to be filled in. The ruts needed to be replaced. They needed something to come in and to change them. Uh, there was a, a lady who was, who was kidnapped as a, as a child, was held in a basement for, for many decades. Um, bizarrely, her captor left all of his inheritance to her. And so um, eventually she was released. He was found out. He went to prison. He died. His inheritance at that house was given to his once captor. And she experienced this profound form of Stockholm Syndrome where she actually went back to live in that house. But she said, one of the best things I ever did was getting five tons of concrete and pouring it into the basement so that in some way that basement that, uh, that she was kept in for many decades could never be used again. She found a, an earthly way of filling in the rut that was in her heart, the scar that had been wrought upon her by the, the, the captivity that, that she had experienced. We too here have, Paul is giving us a way of filling in that rut in our souls. We don't just need to be released from captivity. We need to be given a new desire. And we're given that in Christ. It's like the children who are given one marshmallow over here. And a later experiment, they put a a tray of marshmallows, four or five, behind a screen. They could see them. They couldn't touch them. They'd been given a new desire. They were assured that one day, in 15 to 20 minutes, the experimenter would come back and lift that screen for them. They would take away the one marshmallow. They would lift the screen for the five marshmallows. They're given a new desire, not just in Jesus' death on the cross, which releases us from our captivity, but in his resurrection, a new life that we are given. One of the, one of the things with, um, with desire is that it's completely subjective. My desires aren't going to be the same as your desires. They're subjective to me. What we need is an objective reality and a fact check, if you like. We don't just need a new vision. We need a new vision that exists alongside ourselves and outside of ourselves and our capability to do it. And so Paul writes, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And one verse on, he says, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life 
has set you free from the law of sin and death. He's brought you into a new life. One of the... In, uh, one of the other stories that the gospel tells about the disciples being on a large body of water is of Peter. Peter sees Jesus coming to them over the water, but instead of returning to his natural instincts and rowing, he looks, looks on Jesus and fixes his eyes on him, and he is able to do what Jesus is doing while he has his eyes fixed on Jesus, while he is given an objective vision of what Jesus can do. When he lifts his eyes back to his own reality, to his subjective nature, he starts thinking. We need that objective vision rather than our warped subjectivity to reorient our hearts. So what will it look like when we fix our eyes on that objectivity, on that vision of Jesus, what he has done for us? Well... I think one of the first things it will look like is a freedom to not do anything. A freedom to do that um, final S in bless, to Sabbath. Because suddenly our striving is not what defines us. We can rest in what Jesus has done for us. Secondly, I think we'll find ourselves living in someone else's power. More precisely, we'll find ourselves living in the power of the Spirit to do things. Not our own power to enact things on our own. We'll find ourselves being more comfortable with the utopia that has been given to us by God, through Jesus, rather than the utopia that we're trying to bring about by our own hands. One of the pities about... um, not preaching through Romans for the next five years uh, solidly, is that we won't get to Romans 13 uh, in this this series. But let me read for you from uh, Romans 13, 8 to 10, which is, I think, a good vision of what will happen and what Paul envisages happening when we live in this new life. That we will let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever command there may be, as summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to your neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul picks this out as what living life with this new vision looks like. And I think tangibly, here and now, if there's anything that um, trauma therapy and, and recovery from Stockholm Syndrome has taught us, that one of the powerful things is talking rightly about the experiences that we've had. Once we've had that better vision, we need to talk about it. We need to talk rightly about not just the new vision that we have, but our past lives, about how we have been changed, how we have been uh, scarred, how we have had those scars filled in by Jesus and what that looks like in our day-to-day lives. We need to acknowledge who we were as Cinderella in rags. We need to acknowledge how we have been changed by, that, by the fairy princess. Analogy here, Jesus is not a fairy princess. 
But we also need to acknowledge who we are and the new life that we have been given. And we need to do that by telling each other these stories. We're story-driven people. What are the first things that you, that you ask someone when you meet them? Who are you and what do you do? We are asking people for a narrative. We need to be telling each other that we are no longer slaves. And so I think actually Romans 7.25 is a great way, a great short reminder of this. Be thankful to God for what he has done through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can drive that reorientation deep into our hearts by being thankful, both vertically, thanks God, and horizontally. Paul's telling the Romans this. He's not just speaking to God. This is a letter that's gone to the Romans. He's telling each other. We need other people to provide ourselves objective reference for that. And so, I implore you, bring ourselves out of that sin, of that Stockholm Syndrome, by reorienting our desires. Remind ourselves constantly that we are no longer slaves to sin. We have been brought out of that by Jesus and what he has done. And tell each other that daily. So in the words of Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Amen.